So I know it's holidays, and look at you guys. It's, hol- it's a long weekend, it's school holidays, it's daylight saving, and you are choosing to be in the house of God. Well done. <laughs> Praise God. And we'll pray for all those who have chosen to sleep in this morning. Um, God's good. God is good. How many of you know there's meaning in the mess? You know, as Donna was just sharing there, there is meaning in the mess. One thing I've been reflecting on this week is when Jesus says, come follow me, he doesn't call us to a life of just serenity. He actually calls us to a promise. He calls us to a promise that there will be trouble, there will be brokenness, there will be difficulty, but the great promise and the great peace that we have in the midst of all of that is that there are two nail-pierced hands who are gathering up the broken bits of our lives and making a mosaic. Taking what we perceive to be just brokenness and mess and saying, step back for a moment. Because in this moment of time, all you can see is the muck. But if you could just get out of that moment and you could step back and you could see what I'm doing, a day will come when you will encounter the beauty that I am bringing through your brokenness. And someone asked me last week, they said, why the heck did we choose to preach a sermon series on Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 to 17, the genealogy of Jesus? And I started thinking about it. I was like, do you know what? And some of you, I said this to the young adults on Sunday night. We had a great night Sunday night uh, at the Fatchens doing a bonfire and talking. I said to them, I remembered that at the start of this year, the first sermon I preached this year, you might remember I preached this sermon on uh, making it to the other side. And I got up and I talked about the fact that God had sort of laid on my heart that I felt like 2019 was actually going to be, like I was believing for favor and good things. So I said, you know what, I just believe 2019 is going to be a year of storms. But the promise in the midst of those storms is that he is going to get us to the other side. And at the time when you preach those messages, you're like, yeah, awesome, that's a great word, God, thanks for that. Just feel like maybe that's right. I had absolutely no idea how relevant that was going to be to this, this faith community. And when you take a step back and you think about what has happened, and for me in my position, I get the, the opportunity to deal with lots of you and, and experience some of the stuff that you're going through. I just think of our leadership team even. There has been some storms hit this community of faith. And what happens is, is when we're in the middle of that, so often it's so difficult to see the hand of God. Like we can say, yeah, I know God, your promises are yes and amen in Christ, and I know you're good. We can make those claims, but in the middle of the mess, sometimes it's really, really hard to see what God is doing. Like the seed doesn't see the flower as it's growing, as it's striving in the darkness, does it? All it does is just struggles in the darkness and eventually the flower comes out, but the seed in that moment is just covered in darkness. And I think uh, in our lives, sometimes we get so caught up in the worm's eye view of our situation that we're looking at our situation so close that what God is actually calling us to do is to come back to a bird's eye view and actually see the mosaic that he's slowly shaping out of our mess. And this is why Matthew 1 is so good, is because I think uh, one of the most incredible passages of Scripture for doing exactly that, this isn't just a, a bird's eye view, this is like a satellite view of God bringing beauty across the ages of time. 
in what he is doing in and through humanity. And you might think it's just a list of names, but it is so much more. Amen? So that's why we're in Matthew 1. So let's go there. I'm just going to read a couple of verses to remind you of where we've been and where we're going. And today we get the joy of looking at a character called Ruth. So it says this from Matthew 1, verse 1 through 6. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, and we looked at Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, and we looked at Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Somebody say Ruth. Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of King David, and David was the father of Solomon. And then it carries on. So quick review for those of you who haven't been around or haven't been paying attention. Um, Matthew is a Jewish person. He was a disciple of Jesus. He was a tax collector and he was reformed and he got converted. He started following Jesus. And so he's a Jewish guy writing specifically to Jewish people. And his motive in writing is that the Jews would know that Jesus is the Messiah Okay, and he's writing to tell them what the kingdom is actually like. The Jews had this idea that they can still do have this idea that the kingdom of God was going to be the Messiah, the Savior Yeshua, the one who saves, was going to be this mighty military king who would come and overthrow the powers of the world and reestablish Israel and Jerusalem to the rightful, you know, to the power that it once was before. So that this Messiah would be in the line of King David, that he would be like King David, that it would be sword and might and run, yard, yeah, and all that sort of stuff. And that Israel would be this physical kingdom. And what Matthew is trying to do, using great, incredible Jewish language and Jewish form and prose and the way that he writes, he's trying to get them to see that that's not the kingdom that God has talked about. And he's trying to get them to see that Jesus is the guy who ticks all your boxes, but he's going to fulfill your expectations in a way you never expected. And that's why he's writing. And this 17 verses to start with is actually his introduction. Now help me out here, teachers. Who knows that a good introduction is important for good writing? Amen? Anyone know that? Anyone? My kid's in grade three, my oldest son's in grade three, and they're doing writing. He's got to get your introduction, and you've got to get your bodies. Isn't that right, teach? And then you've got to get all these things, right? Introductions are important. Some of you know I'm, uh, I'm in the almost finished some study. I've been doing some extra study, and it's been just fantastic. I just love writing essays, right? And, uh, and I, like, like, I love what Matthew does because I, I'm a creative writer. I believe that an introduction should be special. An introduction should be something that engages you and hooks you and brings you into what you're about to talk about. It should be something that creates intrigue and is a bit special. So I love to season my introductions with a bit of salt, you know? Like I like to put a bit of sugar on there and a bit of allspice and I want people to read the introduction and go, wow, I can't wait to experience the rest of this essay. And most of my lecturers love it. Except for one. Dr. Leon O'Flynn, I'm going to name him. He's a wonderful man of God, but I've learnt through this process that Dr. Leon O'Flynn doesn't like a Matthew introduction. 
right? So I'd be writing these sorts of introductions with these, you know, grandiose statements and quoting poets and theologians and all this sort of gear. And uh, all my other lecturers, I get my essays back and they're like, oh, fantastic introduction, David. That's great writing, Dave, all that sort of stuff. So when the first assignment I did for Dr. Leon O'Flynn, I was like, I'm sort of expecting that I'll open up my feedback and have a similar thing. And I opened up that feedback and I did not have any positive comments at all. The only thing he wrote on that first page goes, this is not academic writing. <laughs> and I was like, ouch, that hurts, man. And I scraped by that first assignment by the skin of my nose, only just got through it. I was like, wow, he's like, this, is, this guy's tough. I'm going to I'm gonna have to nail things down. And so I started writing just, I started making it more and more bland and more and more boring. And every essay, he would just be, just as critical, just as hitting me hard, pulling me in. So the last essay, I was like, right, that's it, Flynn. I'm gonna, do you know what? This is how I started. I'm going to read it to you. This is how I started that essay, because I was like, you want it simple, you want it bland, you want it direct to the point, I'm going to give it to you. This is what I wrote. This paper will investigate the letter of Jude. In particular, the doxology we find in verse 24 and 25. It will examine what it means to the early church and why it's useful for us today. Full stop, done. And I was like, that's the worst introduction I've ever written in my life. It's boring, it's bland, but O'Flynn must love it. I opened that up and thinking, oh, I've really, like, I've gone to the extremes. I thought the feedback's going to probably be, he probably wants more than that. I get to the feedback, I open up, guess what he wrote? Well done, David. <laughs> Brilliant introduction. <laughs> and I was like, What? That is not a good introduction, Leon. That is not a good, that is a boring introduction. That is anything but brilliant. That is not good. But for him, it was good. And I started laughing because we've been studying Matthew and I was thinking, I wonder what he would think of Matthew. I reckon he'd love Mark, right? He'd love the, this is Mark. In the beginning, the good news of Jesus the Messiah. Full stop. He'd, oh, yes. He'd probably like Luke. Many have undertaken to draw an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from whom were the first eyewitnesses. With this in mind, I have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, and I decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. He'd probably like, yeah, that's not too bad. I reckon he'd hate John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the... he was with God in the beginning. It's like, that's, that's like... Fluffy. But Matthew's a whole other ballgame, isn't it? A guy whose introduction is a genealogy who names five women, five women who shouldn't be in there, who don't belong there. They're not, they're not the, the matriarchs of Israel. They're not the types of names. If you're going to put a woman in, they're not the women you would expect. These are interesting women. And basically, what Matthew is saying is he's using creative license, he's using Jewish language to write this introduction that says, hey, this is what the kingdom of God is going to be like, this is what the Messiah you're searching for is going to be like, and he does it without using any of those words. He does it by naming five women. That's a brilliant introduction. That makes you read it, like as a Jewish person, you read that and you think, wow, what is coming next? It makes you want to dive into the letter of Matthew. That is an introduction, friends. That's how you captivate people. And that's why we're exploring it. Because it should cause us to go, what is it 
about this Jesus that I need to dive into? What is Matthew about to tell us about this kingdom? What is Matthew about to tell us through these five women about this Messiah who is coming to save Israel? It's powerful stuff, friends. And so we've looked at Tamar, we've looked at Rahab, and today we're going to look at Ruth. Now, I've got a little video just to bring the kids into this place, Lauren. You're going to love it. So fix your eyes to the screen for a moment. We've got about a three-minute clip that's going to explain the story of Ruth. Four chapters between Judges and 1 Samuel, if you want to just read along while the video plays. Four chapters explaining the book of Ruth in cartoon form right now. Have a look. Ruth. So part of God's story is about a woman named Ruth, and it begins like this. Ruth lived in a place called Moab and was married to a guy who was part of God's special family, the Israelites. A few years later, though, Ruth's husband died. Instead of returning to her family, which would have been expected, she stayed with Naomi, her husband's mom. Naomi tried to get Ruth to go back to her family in Moab, but Ruth wouldn't leave Naomi, no matter what. In fact, she wanted to go back to Israel with her. Ruth said, Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. So they both returned to Naomi's home in Bethlehem. Back then, though, it was hard for women to find work. Usually, they had to be taken care of by their husband or a dad. It's really hard to imagine that now, but Naomi and Ruth might not have even known how they'd survive. At first, to get food, Ruth went to the fields of a man named Boaz and followed his harvesters around. If they dropped anything, even just a piece of grain, she picked it up. This was called gleaning. Ruth worked from morning to night and barely even took a break. Boaz noticed. He told his workers to leave behind some extra grain for her to gather. When Naomi heard about this, she was overjoyed because Boaz was Naomi's relative and what's called a family redeemer. That meant that it was his responsibility to take care of his family. If anybody was going to rescue Ruth and Naomi, it was Boaz. Kids, we have a redeemer too. It's Jesus. He's the one who saves us. Anyway, this gave Naomi an idea. She told Ruth to put on her best clothes and perfume and then go to the place where Boaz was sleeping. Naomi said that once Boaz had gone to sleep, Ruth should lay down by his feet. Now, this may sound like a weird plan, but it was actually really brave. Ruth trusted Naomi and obeyed. When Boaz woke up, he was surprised. After all, someone was lying at his feet. That's not exactly a normal night. When Boaz asked who Ruth was, she said, I am your servant. You are my family redeemer. Now Boaz understood. Ruth wanted Boaz to marry her so that she and Naomi would both be taken care of. Boaz agreed. This was a huge deal. Ruth wasn't an Israelite, but she wanted to follow God anyway. By marrying Boaz, she got to officially be part of God's family. In fact, Ruth's great-grandson was King David, and many, many years later, Jesus, the rescuer, was born into the same family line. So there you go. I said that's for the kids, but to be honest, it's probably for the adults as well. Helps us uh, refresh our minds on four chapters. So let's go to Ruth now. 
Let's have a look uh, from the first chapter in the first verse. And why, the question is why. Why is Matthew included Ruth? That's what we're trying to unpack here. Why has Matthew mentioned Ruth? What is he trying to say about the kingdom? What is he trying to say about the Messiah? What is he saying to us in the 21st century in Verdun on the first day of daylight savings? What is he saying? So let's have a look at it. Ruth chapter 1 verse 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Everyone say Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons and they married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there for ten years, both Malon and Kilion died and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. First thing that I just want us to grab for a moment here of what Matthew's doing, when he's mentioning Ruth in the genealogy of Jesus, he is, we need to understand that he is making it very clear that this person through whom the Messiah comes is a Moabite. She is a person who doesn't belong. She is a person who is not a person of the promise, right? She's not a Jew. She is not an Israelite. She doesn't come through the line of Abraham. She is a Moabite. Now, for those of you who know your Bible, you would know that the Moabites come through the line, Genesis 19, of a bloke called Lot. And you would know that the way that those children came was through an interesting encounter between Lot and his daughters. There's children in the room. Hopefully you know what interesting means. So this relationship that they had to bear children to bring about a people group called the Moabites was frowned upon by the Israelites. Are you with me? This is not a godly way of producing children, right? And so what we see then throughout history as you journey with Israel, you see that there's this interesting dynamic at play between the Moabites and the Israelites. You you might remember as um, uh, in Numbers, in the book of Numbers, we see that uh, the king of Moab, Balak, He brings on this guy called Balaam to try and curse Israel as they were in the Exodus working towards their promised land. Uh, But Balaam can't curse Israel. Even a talking donkey gets in the way. Are you with me? So there's this incredible story of where uh, Moab is trying to curse Israel. And God's saying, no, no, they're my chosen people. But what happens in Numbers 25 is that while Balaam can't curse Israel on behalf of Moab, are you staying with all the Abzanites and these things? 
while that's going on, that can't happen. So what happens is, is that the Moabite women actually come to the Israelite men and seduce them and lead them away from Yahweh. So there's this sense that the Moabites are a people who take the Israelites, who lead the Israelites into sin. Right? So the Moabites are frowned upon. Even in the book of Deuteronomy, it says that a Moabite cannot enter the, the, um, the worship space. They cannot enter the tabernacle of God. They're, not, they're forbidden from the presence of God, right? So the Moabites are a people that are frowned upon. Therefore, this is crazy that the Messiah of Israel would come through a Moabite. This is, this is like mind-blowing that God would bring redemption, God would bring his kingdom, that God would bring salvation to the Jews through the very people that the Jews despise. Through the people who had led the Jews, led Israel into sin, he's saying, I'm going to redeem that to bring life. And there's a word for us in that, there is a word for all of us in that, in that redemption looks different to the big King David coming and slaying the mighty nations with the sword. He's saying redemption is for all people, not just the Jews, right? He's saying, remember the promise to Abraham. It was that I will bless all people on account of you. All people, all people, not just the Jews, that the blessing of Abraham would go forth to everyone, right? And what Matthew's saying here is, you've got this idea in your head that there's going to be a Messiah who's going to save Israel and establish Jerusalem. No, no, no. It's different from that. The Messiah is going to bring redemption for all of humanity. For all of you. He's even going to redeem the Moabites. He's going to redeem the broken. He's going to redeem the sinners. He's going to redeem those people who you want nothing to do with. He's coming after them. And the message is that sometimes it's those who are self-righteous, who think that they belong in the kingdom, who have rejected the people who don't belong in the kingdom. They're the ones missing out because they are not receiving the grace of God. They can't see the Messiah because they're so caught up in their self-righteousness. And the word to us is, are we those people? Or do we recognize that we are Moabites? All of us. We're Ruth. We're Ruth. We're the people who are so far from God. We're the people who have rejected him. We're the people who have just gone astray, who have chased after the stuff of the world. That is our story, every single one of us. And we are solely dependent on the Messiah, the Redeemer, to come to us and to make us whole. It's what I love about what Donna just shared about the fact that it's not about me striving to abide. It's about me saying, come and abide in me. This is the heart. And Matthew's saying, hey, God's going to work through the Moabites. Ruth, this person who you acknowledge in your history, this person who you recognize as a godly person, she's a filthy, rotten Moabite. And God chose her. And God's choosing you. I don't know how many of you have got people in your lives. I've got some friends who say, oh, no, 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 I'm too far from God. I've got one man who says, I can't come to church. I'll light up in flames the moment I step through that door. I'm like, no, my brother. You will not light up in flames the moment you step in that door. You'll be lit up in love. And here's my heart. 
as a church family, what do we do when those people walk through our doors? What do we do when those type of people walk? Can I get real direct for a moment? What happens if a lesbian couple walks in hand in hand? How do we treat them? Do we wrap them up in the love of Jesus? Or do we stand awkwardly and treat them like Moabites? Or coming into your house this morning. What do we do when someone walks in with tattoos all over their face and all over their arms and all over their necks and they're scary looking and they've just come from Kairos prison ministry or Torch prison ministry. We're not sure we can connect with them on the level that I normally connect with other people. Are we going to wrap them up in the love of Jesus? Are we going to tell them that, hey, you might be a Moabite, but God's chosen you and he wants to save you and he wants to redeem you and he wants to bring you into the eternal kingdom of the son that he loves. This is the heart of this church This is the heart of Jesus. This is why we say we are a cross-centered church because we are here for the broken because it is the broken through which God will bring beauty. He has come for the broken. He has come for those who most need him. If only we would have a revelation that it's all of us. We all need him. So firstly, Ruth is a Moabite. This is the thing that we need to grasp. Second thing, Ruth is faithful. There's something about faithfulness. There's something about perseverance. There's something about patience and obedience that Matthew is saying. The nature of the kingdom rests in this idea of endurance. Yeah? We're in an insta society. We're in a society where I click and I get. Even on Kindle, Do you want to buy it with one click? Yes, I do. A vending machine. Do you want that Coke? Yes, I do. That's how our world works right now. It's instant. Everything's click, get, click, get, push, get. And so we think, therefore, the kingdom should be the same way. But it's not. That's not the kingdom. And Matthew is saying this in chapter 1 of his gospel, in his introduction. He's saying, friends, the kingdom is not just I do and I get. No, no, no. The kingdom is about patient, faithful endurance. It's about being that seed that God has put in the ground, knowing that if I just stay the course, if I hold fast, he will bring something magnificent out of my life. And do you know what? It might not even be in my lifetime. It might not be in my children's lifetime or my children's children's lifetime. The promise of a genealogy is that generation after generation after generation, God is outworking his plan. And people love to quote Jeremiah 29, for I know the plans he has for me to close. You know, we love to say that about my, that's talking about his plan for humanity and history. It is not God's plan for the orphan in Africa to die of starvation. That is not his plan for that child. His plan is the redemption of humanity through the son that he loves. And the call is, what are you going to do about it, church? It's about faithful endurance. Let's, go, let's keep reading. Ruth, we'll go to chapter 1, verse 12. Are you with me? So that's Naomi's son dies and Ruth and Orpah are like, what are we going to do? Ruth, the name, he says, go home, go back to your family where you can get looked after. And so from verse 12, return home, my daughters. I'm too old and I, to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, 
Even if I had a husband tonight, I wonder how many of you have said, even if I thought there was still hope for me. Even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud, then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. I want you to catch that with everything you have in your heart. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn, or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. And then she goes on. I just love it. As I was reading that, I couldn't help but think of Jesus saying to that centurion, greater faith have I not seen in all of Israel. Here is a Moabite woman who's saying, I'm going to forsake everything that I know. I'm going to forsake comfort. She's probably mid-20s, right? She has endured so much. Ten years she's been married. Now, in that culture, that means ten years she's been trying to have kids. Ten years she's been barren. Ten years she's been journeying. Ten years she's suffered. Ten years she's chased and longed for something that hasn't come. And then when she thinks it should come and it should arrive, instead of receiving what she wants, her husband dies. Ten years, so much pain, so much difficulty, and at the end of that, when the easy option is go back to my people, marry a bloke, all right, get looked after, have kids, I can worship the gods of mob, I can do all of that, she says, no, I know truth. I have encountered Yahweh. I have seen the love of God in this woman, and I am going to faithfully follow I will keep walking in faith. I will serve the Lord. I love that at Joshua. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. No matter what comes, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. That's what Ruth is saying. And I love Hebrews 10.36. You have need of patience, so having done the will of God, you may receive the promise. That beautiful passage in Isaiah 40. Those that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. Amen? They will rise on wings of eagles. God, guys, it's a, the kingdom is a call to endurance. The kingdom is a call to patience. The kingdom is a call to faithfulness. That is the promise that Matthew is trying to get you to see is that just because things are not going well for you doesn't mean that God is not working in you. Doesn't mean that God is still not speaking to you. It doesn't mean that God is not showing favor over you. He still loves you. He is still for you. He is not against you. He's just calling you to endurance. You can't see it, but it doesn't mean it's not happening. Because God is in the long game, and he's calling us to the long game. He's calling us to the long game. And friends, just as a side note, this is why we need to be in church. This is why we need to be gathering like-minded believers around us to encourage us. Because I'll tell you what, if you've ever been on a long journey and you're going by yourself, it gets real hard real quick. There's something about running it together though, isn't there? That call and that, that beautiful encouragement to patient endurance. And here's the third thing. I'm going to close with this. And the band, you can come up. 
So he's saying the kingdom, firstly, is for everyone. He's saying the kingdom is not going to be just an instant thing. This is a call to patience. It's a call to faithfulness. It's a call to endurance. That's what this Christian life is going to look like. And the third thing he says, the reason I'm calling you to that is because I need you to know that Jesus is a better Boaz. Jesus is a better Boaz. In fact, Jesus is the best Boaz. You know, I remember growing up in church and you'd hear the story of Ruth and the kinsman redeemer. And I always thought it said kingsman redeemer. You know when you just hear stuff and in your mind you just, as a kid, you're like, oh, that's what that means. So I always had this picture as he's like, you know, the kingsman. On, I had this picture of a knight just riding a horse with his sword being like, hey, I'm a kingsman. I didn't even know what a kingsman was, but that's what I thought it was. I had no idea what a kinsman was. I thought it was a kingsman. Anyone else like that? Maybe it's just me. Kinsman redeemer is a powerful phrase. This means that Boaz was a part of the family, and Simon unpacked this a couple of weeks ago. But it means he is of their kin. He is of the family line. He is able to redeem. And what Matthew is saying is that this Messiah who is coming is going to be one who is able to redeem. He is not distant. He is not some far off mythological character. He is not a just pie in the sky when you die. No, he came and he took on flesh and he bore our iniquity. He is familiar with all of our suffering. He is engaged. He is invested. He is deeply entrenched in what it means to be a human being going through this patient, faithful endurance. And he is saying, I am able to redeem. I took on flesh so that I can redeem your flesh. I took on human form so that I could redeem humanity. So I actually had the authority to stand before all of eternity and say, they're mine. He's mine. She's mine. And he paid a price for it. You see, Boaz had to pay a price. Ruth gave him nothing of value. She brought nothing. She's a widow. She's a Moabite. She's worthless to Boaz. Yet, he loves her. She brings nothing. And yet, he pays a price for her. Because he adores her. Because he's, he's like, there's something about you, Ruth. No one else can see it. Even that other bloke who had the authority to redeem you before me, he doesn't see it. He doesn't get it. He doesn't understand how, how amazing you are and how, much, how lovely you are. He goes, but I do. I do. And I want, to, I want to marry you. I want to redeem you. I want to bring you. And this is beautiful language, isn't it? This kingdom language, this idea that uh, Jesus is coming for his bride. He's the better Boaz. He's the best Boaz. He's able to redeem. And he chooses us and he loves us. And when, you know, I love, it's so bold that Ruth would come and propose to Boaz. It's crazy. There's something about just, boldness that sometimes we need to come to God with, amen? Sometimes we've just got to come to God and just let it all out. And Boaz is like, yeah, I will do that. And this is what God says to us every single day. He says, yeah, I will do that. It might not look how you want it to look. You might have to go through some stuff. But I've got you. Because I'm the better Boaz. 
I am the kinsman redeemer. I am here for you. I love you. I've chosen you. I've, I've searched through history, time, and space to wrap my arms around you and bring you into the eternal kingdom. He's the better Boaz. And I wonder this morning if you know that. I wonder this morning if you know the love of Christ. I wonder if sometimes you come to church because you're coming to church and you're doing the faithful thing and that's awesome. But I wonder if you know how lovely you are in the sight of God. I wonder if you know that. How precious you are in the sight of God. Like you know the fact that you're a Moabite. You're like, yeah, I don't deserve his love. You know the fact that life's tough. And so you're like, where God has forsaken me. You know that word of Naomi where God's hand has left me. And yet the promise of Ruth and the promise that Matthew's trying to get us to see is that you are not forsaken. You are loved. And the evidence of that is a cross that stands through time and space saying, I am bringing reconciliation. I am bringing redemption. I am drawing you to myself. I am your redeemer. Will you let me in? He's the better Boaz. And all of this from one single name in a genealogy about what the kingdom is like. That it's for everyone. That it's for the broken, it's for the least. This is who he's trying to reach. That it is about patient endurance. And that it's a kingdom, not of military might, but of redemption and relationship. Let's stand to our feet. So as we close, let me pray. And as always, if you would like prayer this morning, we'd love to pray for you. So if you've got faith to pray, come down the front uh, to the wings. We'll go out to the corners. And uh, if you would like prayer, like some encouragement maybe, as Donna was sharing, around not encountering that Father heart of God. Maybe you're feeling distant from God. I just pray this morning that that message that he is your kinsman redeemer, that he does love you, that he is the better Boaz, that Christ is a better Boaz. Just pray that God has just shone some light in the value that exists within you. And we'd love to encourage you in that this morning, that you are chosen, that you are loved, that you have purpose, you have meaning. And even in the middle of the mess, look what came through Ruth. Just a couple of generations later, a mighty king whose name was David. And then generation and generation and generation beyond that, look what came through Ruth. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, our Redeemer and Lord. You might think you have no purpose, but God is saying, oh, yes, you do. You might think you have no worth and God is saying, oh, if only you knew. We want to speak that into your lives this morning. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, I thank you for every 
individual in this place, for every individual just watching online, for every individual who calls this place home, who's holidaying or whatever they're doing. God, I pray for a revelation of the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, their Lord. I pray for each and every one of them that they would see themselves today as Ruth, knowing that though they come with nothing, they receive everything. That they are bought at a price, that they are loved by the best Boaz, who gave everything to call their mine. So God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We pray that it would do what only it can do, that it would not return void. And God, that you just continue to encourage us this week in the love of God. They would continue to encourage us in that story of Ruth. And we thank you that in Christ all God's promises are yes and amen. Sometimes they just take longer than we want. We love you, Lord. We give you honor, glory, and praise. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So if you'd like prayer, come forward. We'd love to pray for you. We're going to sing a song and then we'll close. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.